this is, I think, one of the biggest challenges facing humanity in our era. And the North Korean people, I think, deserve and need a lot more allies around the world, a lot more solidarity and support for them. of the podcast, I speak with the Director of Research and Strategy for the organization Liberty in North Korea. Now, this organization works to rescue the thousands of North Korean refugees that have escaped their country and that are now at risk of exploitation and capture. And they do so without cost or condition while ensuring their safe and dignified journey to freedom within South Korea. And today, we discuss why he and many others with him at the organization even do this work and what the motivations are behind it. My guest also lays out what the process is for rescuing North Korean refugees, but perhaps most importantly, we discuss how important it is to change the narrative and to get the story away from Kim Jong-un, Trump and nuclear weapons and instead highlight the people of North Korea with stories of hope and resilience and beauty as this is not only a political problem, this is a humanitarian one as well. And lastly, my guest discusses what you can do to help or simply how you can be an ally to the victims of the North Korean regime. So, with that in mind, please welcome the very, very passionate Sokil Park. Mind-bending chemicals. I don't care, he wants to kill me. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! anything then just feel free to jump in okay uh so i'm sakil park and i'm the south korea country director for liberty in north korea also known as link we're an organization that's actually originally founded and based in the united states we now have the office here in, in seoul and field staff on the ground in southeast asia and as the name liberty in north korea would suggest we're focused on the north korea issues the main on-the-ground program is working with North Korean refugees, so people who are escaping across the river north into China. Uh, but then in China, uh, you know, the Chinese government doesn't rec- recognize North Korean refugees, and if they're found, then they'll be repatriated to face torture and a range of harsh, pun- harsh punishments. And even if they're not caught, they're uh, very, uh, you know, at high risk mm-hmm. of various forms of exploitation especially North Korean women. And North Korean women make up the vast majority of the people who become refugees. Interesting. And so, yeah. And so our work on the ground is helping North Korean refugees to come from Northeast China, where they're coming out of North Korea, all the way through China into Southeast Asia, from where they can gain resettlement in South Korea or the United States. And so... uh, to date, we've been able to help 1,200 North Korean refugees in that way, wow. uh, and also a, a number of children born to North Korean women in China as well. And then once they come here, and the vast majority of them choose to come to South Korea, uh, we work with them, especially in the first year of their resettlement here, to try and uh, ease their adjustment into a new and obviously very different society and economy and culture. Uh, and beyond that, the the main way that we work on this issue is trying to mobilize international support for the North Korean people. Uh, as you know, as I'm sure you know, and as I'm sure your listeners know, mm-hmm. North Korea is a it's a famous country, if you like. It's well known. It's in the news a lot. But 
I think it's in the news for pretty one-dimensional reasons for Kim Jong-un and nuclear weapons, basically the, the kind of security political dimension. And I think that that contributes to a lack of support and humanization and empathy for the North Korean people. And uh, it also means that there's not, been, there's not traditionally been that much civil society engagement mm. on this issue. You know, a lot of people have kind of left it to the negotiators, if you like, to the governments, to the presidents, to the diplomats. Uh, and so we're trying to mobilize people-to-people -people support around the world. And uh, uh, one of the main ways that we do that is to try and provide a platform uh, and try and amplify or empower North Korean voices so that people around the world can actually hear from North Koreans who aren't Kim Jong-un, mm -hmm. right? There's, there's, tw there's 25 million North Koreans, and yeah, there's 25 million North Koreans, and we hear uh, mostly from the perspective of just one of them, right? Mm -hmm. Kim Jong-un and, and his <coughs> government. Uh, and so we do that through documentaries, through mm -hmm. various uh, online media and campaigns, through uh, you know, real-world events uh, and tours, and those kind of things. Uh, and so that's, that's a, a broad overview of our work. Mm -hmm. And uh, in terms of why I do this work, um, I guess try, try and give you the shortest possible version. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm Korean British. I grew up in Manchester in the UK. Uh, my, my dad's side is Korean and my mother's side is English. And uh, so, you know, I, I heard about both North and South Korea from an early age and kind of got interested. And I think that maybe in contrast with a lot of South Koreans who grow up in South Korea, mm -hmm. uh, we found in our organization that it's uh, a lot of the time it's actually Korean diaspora or sometimes South Koreans who live abroad mm. who uh, kind of connect with this issue, North Korea and the, these bigger picture Korean Peninsula issues in a different way, because I think that if you just live in South Korea, uh, it can be kind of background noise. But if you live abroad or if you grow up abroad, but you have some kind of connection, or whether it's a kind of ethnic hereditary connection or just you get interested in it in some way, it's it, it, then it's not just background noise. Mm. It's something that you can kind of look from afar. And actually, I think it's basically objectively very interesting right yeah. it's it's fascinating it's, it's funny that you say that yeah because i i think you know from my experience uh, coming over here i was expecting sort of the the north korea situation to be like this just cloud looming over everyone's head kind of thing and, and i right. think other foreigners have a similar experience but when you get here it's like the average korean doesn't think twice about it on their day right exactly it's kind of you know it's that it's that background issue mm -hmm. you learn a little bit about it in school there's not really a, an engaging mm -hmm. way to get into it for a lot of people. Uh, I mean, these countries have been so extremely divided, not just divided, but mm -hmm. extremely mutually isolated for 70 years now. Right? This year is the 70th anniversary wow. of the start of the Korean War. So that's three generations. Young Koreans, you know, they've, the vast majority of them will young South Koreans will have never met a North Korean person. Mm -hmm. They've never been there. They know so little about it. There's just little snippets in the news about Kim Jong-un and missiles and maybe the threat of war, but then it never actually comes to pass. Mm -hmm. And so people, I think, become a little bit understandably deadened to it mm -hmm. and, and, and maybe cynical yeah, yeah. And, and, and cynical. And, you know, it feels like it feels very abstract. Yeah. Uh, 
So, you know, I think it's it's partially understandable. I think that that's also in the long term a problem as well. And so mm-hmm. that's one of the things that we're trying to work on is trying to uh, provide ways for especially young South Koreans mm-hmm. to engage with this issue and especially engage with North Korean people in a different way. And, and at the moment, of course, especially through North Koreans who have left North Korea and now mm-hmm. live in South Korea. So, so for you, you're sort of mentioning before uh, being British Korean, you think you have sort of a, um, not more of a realistic outlook, but more of a, uh, a less deadened outlook, a less numb outlook, uh, uh, you know, something that might actually might uh, trigger in your brain more than the average Korean would. Yeah, I think that there is something to be said for that outsider's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that in South Korea, you know, North Korea is a big issue. But there are some pretty strong frames and lenses Mm -hmm. through which people uh, view North Korea as an issue. And it has been very politicized and, Mm. of course, securitized. And so sometimes even just, you know, being a little bit ignorant to that and to that context that South Koreans grow up in and just seeing the issue maybe with slightly more ignorant, more naive, but maybe fresher eyes in a way, you know, having that kind of immigrant outside the perspective of, it, not just taking it for granted, but mm. well, why is it like that? And, and what's the long-term picture here? And those kind of things. So, um, you know, we work as an organization with all sorts of people, right? And people coming from different backgrounds. I think that that's actually one of our strengths. Mm. We're mostly fairly young in our 20s and 30s, uh, but we're from North Korea. We're from South Korea. We're wow. from the United States. We're from Europe. We're from South America. A lot of us, but not all of us, have Korean heritage. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that, that maybe helps with the language. Mm-hmm. A lot of us, we, we do speak Korean and other languages. Uh, and But, you know, I think that having that not just South Korean or not just North Korean perspective, I think it is something that can be used as an advantage. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was sort of a question that I'll think about asking a bit later in the, in the podcast, but uh, you've sort of mentioned it already, is that... You've mentioned the sort of, I suppose, disparity almost between uh, the things that you hear in the news about maybe the reality of, of South Korea um, and maybe what the reality, the actual reality is. And for example, you know, just like you had mentioned before, you, especially if you're in America or something, you're more thinking about the threat of war and Kim Jong-un and things like that. And you don't really look at it from a humanitarian perspective. You don't look at it from the reality of, of these people living day to day on the ground, that kind of thing. And uh, I think that probably makes the situation quite cold. And, uh, you know, we constantly get stories in the West, again, as you you would know, just talking about how crazy North Koreans are. And, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, you take that because it's an interesting story, but you don't think about the illnesses, the, you know, the the grandpa, the kids, all these sort of, sort of family dynamics that happen in your country too that also happen there. So I guess one quick question before we, we sort of get more into um, what you're doing with the organization is if you could sort of make a difference, if you could change the way the media was portraying the whole situation, what what changes would you like to make? How would you try to make this a more accurate portrayal? Yeah, sure. Um, and so... This is actually something that we try and do as well. And mm-hmm. in particular here in Seoul, and there's a lot of journalists that have to cover North Korea one way or another. Uh, there are comparatively very few journalists that get to cover North Korea from inside, at least mm-hmm. on a regular basis. 
And uh, so, I mean, sometimes they're covering North Korea from Tokyo or from Beijing or from Seoul or or from Mm. even further afar. And so I think that that structural kind of uh, constraint on journalism on North Korea contributes to the politicization Mm. and the focus on the governments, right? Because you don't have access to the ground. Mm -hmm. You're not, uh, you know, you're not engaging with the North Korean economy or society or culture or those kind of things. Sometimes a lot of the source material for journalism becomes the government's, right? It becomes mm. what what was Trump's latest tweet or the latest State Department, uh, you know, pronouncement or Treasury Department, you know, sanctions announcement or uh, what is the Blue House here in South Korea saying about it? Yeah. And of course, what's coming out of North Korea, which is the North Korean government, right? Uh, the, the latest missile test, all of these mm-hmm. kind of things. And so sometimes it's just the dominant source material for journalism is focused on the, the government level, security, politics, uh, military issues, and so on. And I think that some, a lot of the time it is kind of focused on the, the threat narrative. Mm. And so in terms of media engagement, one of the main things that we're trying to do is get more people-centered stories and narratives in there. Uh, and that's, you know, that can be diverse. It can mm-hmm. be, uh, you know, how, like, what is driving North Koreans to risk their lives to escape the country mm-hmm. and what that looks like when they come to South Korea. It can also be what their lives look like in South Korea as well. Some of the challenges that they face, but also I think what's really important and necessary on this issue is some of the hopeful stories. Uh, you know, not just all doom and gloom mm. and you know, North Korean people as, as just victims or just suffering, but actually highlighting the agency of North Korean people. Yeah. And I mean, you know, just coming from my own personal experience, the reason why I keep working on this issue is not because, you know, the, the suffering of the North Korean people and the victimhood of the North Korean people and these kind of things. Obviously, that provides an important baseline, the kind mm-hmm. of seriousness of this issue. But what keeps me working on it, and I think what's really important for sustaining uh, and for increasing international support from the North Korean people is the point to sources of hope, which is the North Korean people themselves. It mm. is the changes that North Korean people are able to make in their own lives, both inside the country and also when they come to South Korea, being successful. Right? A lot of times we hear about the less successful cases and mm-hmm. a lot of the problems and challenges that people face. I think yeah, that that's the, quite high profile. Those are. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's the dominant narrative of North Korean refugees is that they suffer and they, they face problems, but mm-hmm. uh, that's obviously not the full picture. And for me, a lot of my friends from North Korea, they're, you know, yeah, for sure. They may face challenges adjusting to a new society and sometimes being dislocated from their communities and families and so on. But, a lot of them are very impressive and wow. they, they make success on their own terms. Sometimes they may start businesses, they may hire people, mm-hmm. they may hire other young North Koreans and young South Koreans. Mm-hmm. They may go to university, they may you know, get a job in a, a South Korean company. They may make their, you know, get out and make their own art or media or uh, all of these kind of things. And so trying to highlight the potential of the North Korean people and, and the hope uh, that comes from their not just resilience, but creativity, talent, ambition, you know, all of these things that uh, they, like anybody else around mm-hmm. the world, is bringing to the table. But sometimes uh, it, it gets 
it gets completely lost, right? It's with all the focus on Kim Jong Un and nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, that says something about just like the the sort of beauty of um, human resourcefulness as a whole, right? You know that, that these people, sort of in these situations, given the right chance, can can have a life in a normal existence in the way that you or I would have a life, and that's quite an incredible thing. Um, and it's important to, to sort of mention as well because it might seem like a naive question on the surface. Um, but as we've discussed, the news that we often get in the West is can be sometimes a little bit warped. So basic grassroots question, what are they escaping from? What, why are these people risking their lives, as you mentioned, to come down to, um, to, to go to a different country other than North Korea? What is the problem with living there? Sure. Um, well, uh, the, the reasons have changed a little bit mm-hmm. um, over the years. And so if we, if we simplify the trend, uh, you know, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, um, it was maybe as recent as 10 years ago, it was more about food security or food insecurity, right? Basically, uh, people going hungry. Mm-hmm. Um, from the 1990s, uh, there was a massive famine, one of the worst of the 20th century wow. uh, per population. Uh, and, and, quite a unique famine as well in terms of how avoidable, how unnecessary it was. This is the only famine that's happened in human history uh, that's affected an urbanized, literate society mm-hmm. in that kind of way. Um, there, were, there were obvious things, that uh, the obvious ways that the North Korean government contributed to it and then obvious steps that they could have taken to ameliorate it, including inviting the international community to help more in an earlier mm-hmm. date and making it easier for them to help. Um, so it's, it, it was quite a different famine. And, look, mm. and food insecurity and poverty in North Korea is somewhat different to poverty and food insecurity in other places in the world. Um, I think that the unique thing in North Korea is how enforced it is how much Mm. the poverty is a product of government policy and obviously you know poverty is always going to be influenced by government policy but um in north korea maybe to an extreme level Mm -hmm. right this is a this is an artificial or an enforced poverty uh it's not necessarily that the north korean government wants everybody to be poor but it's that their policies make that almost an inevitable mm, outcome right. of the level of control and repression and isolation from the rest of humanity that they enforce on North Korean people. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, that's the first thing, and that's the historical thing. And then since then, food security has actually improved over the last uh, 10, 20 years. I mean, especially, you know, it was a long-term trend from the 1990s to the 2000s to the 2010s. Uh, this is mostly actually due to the rise of a market economy in North Korea that mm-hmm. has been very, very driven bottom up and okay. decentralized. Uh, and so the, there has been growth in the North Korean economy, and really not thanks to the North Korean government. No. It's more thanks to the, to the strength and the, the creativity and resilience you know, of North Korean people. Uh, and then, so the, the reasons that people are risking their lives to escape have switched to uh, more broadly, you could say political, right? Mm-hmm. If you go from kind of economic reasons of food security and, and uh, those kind of things 
to not necessarily, you know, I hate Kim Jong-un and I love Moon Jae-in and I want to live in a liberal mm. democracy, not those kind of political reasons necessarily, but more uh, about knowing about the outside world mm-hmm. and being able to compare to their own system, their own country. Uh, and so, for instance, uh, over the past few years, there have been uh, South Korean dramas and films and Chinese yeah. media and even European and, and American and so on. Uh, different forms of media mm. getting into the country. Leaking the in, North yeah. Korean government yeah, tries to stop, but cannot stop fully. And so people get access to that. There's word of mouth, rumors, um, you know, some people listening to radio illicitly mm-hmm. at night. So people finding ways to learn things about the outside world and being able to compare their country with, the, with other neighboring countries mm-hmm. in a way that the North Korean government tries to but cannot stop. Okay. And that then providing the motivation for people to try and escape and come to South Korea. Mm-hmm. Uh, lastly, maybe there's just the, the confounding effect of once North Korean refugees started coming out and making it to mm-hmm. South Korea in particular, and then feeding that information back into the country, that then provided uh, motivation and also knowledge about how to do, how it, to do it to people, oh. especially in, in those communities where more North Korean refugees come from. So in mm-hmm. particular, in the northeast of the country, okay. uh, it's more of a known phenomenon. Okay, so it's like a trickle effect. And in the Northeast, I guess, because it's close to the border where they can actually escape, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's, there's been more kind of cross-border movement there, right. including it, well, especially illegal movements in mm-hmm. China. Yep. So that's an important point too, as we're sort of um, running out of time, just as an idea for people, what is, can you give us sort of the, the standard, there probably is no standard picture with it, but this, the standard picture of, say, a, a woman who is in North Korea is planning her escape. How does she escape? What does she then face uh, in China in, in terms of what negatives could happen, um, sure. what positive could happen? But then also your organization, what steps uh, do you actually take and what do you do? What is the process to get that person into South Korea? Sure. So there are a lot of steps there. And the mm-hmm. first step would actually be knowing that escaping and getting to South Korea is even an option. Right. Uh, and so, you know, if you if you live close to the border, especially in some of the border towns or bigger cities in the northeast of the country, it's more of a known phenomenon mm-hmm. because other people in from your community may have done it. It's kind of, a, you know, almost like an open secret kind of thing. But if you're from the interior of the country, uh, a lot of people don't even know it's not in their universe of possibilities mm. that they could escape and get all the way to South Korea and then have a life in South Korea, right? The yeah. South Korea, South Korean government would accept them and support them and they could live here. And so that's actually privileged knowledge to a lot of North Koreans. And you see that, uh, you know, people from sometimes people from, from Pyongyang who escape or people from other interior cities, when they come here, they're surprised sometimes really shocked at how many other North Koreans have escaped <laughs> and have come here. That's funny, right? And so wow. that shows, right? Yeah. That shows it's, it's really, it's really not a known thing. Yeah. Uh, I've never even considered that fact as well, to be honest. Like I've never considered that it, people don't think about it, but I suppose that just shows how I'm not used to that, that sort of life. Right. Uh, it, it shows how, how closed in the knowledge and information mm-hmm. environment is right. And even within the country, there are big regional differences. Mm. So, Maybe maybe you somehow get access to privileged knowledge. Maybe you nobody know somebody 
you know, and, and there would have to be a very trusted person mm. to share this information from a border region and you learn, or maybe you're from closer to the border yourself, and maybe even somebody from your family has already escaped and come, then you'll have to plan and try and work out what your route is. And that route is different for every person. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are certain areas where more people will come out, but obviously if there was like just one highway where everybody mm. was coming out, then North Korean government would shut it shut down. It down yeah. And so it is, it is different per person and it is a life or death thing. And so a lot of the people that I know that have made it to South Korea, they may have planned their defection for more than a year, for wow. two years, for multiple wow. years. They may have even attempted it multiple times. Uh, it is a very difficult thing to do. It's something that a lot of thought and, and, and care goes into. Uh, then if somebody can find a route, you know, somebody, uh, they, they can connect with somebody who is, is promising that they can help them to get across that river and then maybe make a connection in China with somebody mm -hmm. that can help them. And then they feel like they can trust that person as well. Mm -hmm. Because also, you know, obviously people can get screwed over or exploited in this situation. People, you know, promising the world and then taking the money and, and doing a runner or yeah. even worse, you know, turning them in and them getting arrested. Uh, so if they were able to do that and get across, then sometimes they will be, uh, you know, they will be plugged into a network in China that can pretty quickly bring them through and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, in a matter of days, uh, bring them over ground through China, through Southeast Asia, from where they can resettle to South Korea. Or uh, the initial thing may have just been just to get to China mm -hmm. and then try and work out. And that's very difficult because you, you can imagine, well, it, it's a bit difficult to imagine maybe, but if we uh, try and think of ourselves getting out of North Korea, right? Risking our lives, you know, getting through the North Korean border security, the fences, past mm -hmm. the guards, getting across the river. In the winter, it does freeze across. And so a lot of people just, you know, run across the run frozen across. ice uh, or they'll, they'll try and wade or swim. And a lot of North Koreans can't swim basically. So uh, that can actually be a pretty formidable Dangerous barrier, too. just the river itself. Yeah. Uh, and so then getting into China, imagine yourself being, a North Korean person who's just escaped your country is in China for the first time, doesn't speak Chinese, doesn't have mm. Chinese money, doesn't know people in China, doesn't have papers. And China, wow. and you know that China is a big place, but you don't know the route out of it. I mean, if it was me, I'd probably give up on the spot. I'd probably <laughs> like, okay, I, right. I made it out, but I, you know, how the hell am I going to get out of mm -hmm. China into another country? I mean, it's, you know, it's a big place and, uh, they will assume correctly that you need to show an ID card and mm. show papers and so on, as you do in North Korea even more. But in China, you get on a train, you get on a bus. Uh, there are pretty regular ID checks. Still a communist country, and yeah. yeah. And so, uh, and and by the way, even more difficult, almost impossible right now with the the Wuhan uh, of course. coronavirus. That's right. Yeah, and so. And so anyway, it, it means that you have to connect with a trusted network mm -hmm. that can bring you through. And uh, we are one of those networks, right? Right. So it's not just us doing this work, but we are one of those networks. Uh, and if, and, and honestly, it's an honor and a privilege if North Korean people who have risked their lives and are maybe, you know, at the most dangerous point of their lives, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they actually trust us, people that they don't know. Uh, and, you know, as, as we reach out a hand, you know, they take it kind of thing and, and they'll come all the way through China and Southeast Asia with us. So we settle mm-hmm. in uh, South Korea normally mm-hmm. or sometimes sometimes another country. And mm-hmm. so when that works, um, that's, that's the best part of our work. And when we meet, you know, when they come through the South Korean government processing and they start their lives in South Korea, uh, and sometimes these are people who have left North Korea so recently mm. and we're hanging out in Seoul and we're doing all of the kind of things that wow. you can do in Seoul. And sometimes these people may have been in North Korea, you know, earlier that year. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. The, like the, this is like recently, uh, it was the Lunar New Year. And we, we did kind of a big gathering for that. And there were a lot of people at that gathering who last solar, last lunar new year, they were still in North Korea. Wow. And this lunar new year, they're in South Korea and they're starting their new lives here. What a big and change. They can, yeah, they, they can do what they want. They can say what they want. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they don't have to fear the knock on the door, you know, in the night uh, or being listened in on or, mm-hmm. you know, not having freedom of movement or yep. freedom of information and all of these kind of things. And, it's it's kind of it's a little bit mind blowing to be honest. It is um, to see people making that transition and uh, and and starting completely different lives, and then you know often having having families, and then seeing those children mm-hmm. grow up in South Korea instead of North Korea, mm-hmm. which is a you know almost about as different as you can get in terms of two and neighboring countries. To be clear as well, so yeah, Liberty North Korea. Do you have any sort of roots or feelers actually? inside North Korea or do you completely start the process when someone in China who is connected to your organization gives you a ring and says oh look someone has just appeared right so we we may know of people inside North Korea Mm -hmm. uh, especially when there are family members who Mm -hmm. have already come to South Korea Uh, and they're connecting us that makes sense but we we then don't go into North Korea Mm -hmm. and extract people that's obviously a little bit of a different game of course um we help people if they're able to leave North Korea and come to China, then we and a lot of other organizations would class them as North Korean refugees. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're not a refugee when you're still in the country. Right. You become a refugee by virtue of the fact that you've left and then you have a well-founded first fear of persecution if you are sent back. Mm-hmm. That fact makes you a refugee. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> not in the, not in the eyes of the, the Chinese government or the North yeah. Korean government, of course, but in uh, basically all of the other important stakeholders' eyes, they become North Korean refugees, and so it's from that point, it's from when they can become refugees that we help them to to come all the way through. Right, right. So one last question for you, just before you um, yeah. go off to your next meeting. Uh, something that I've thought about as well. You know, they come here uh, and. As you've mentioned before, there's quite a few high-profile cases of of um, North Koreans, I guess, not settling in, and these are probably for a lot of a lot of cultural, social, and even psychological reasons. But one thing that I do wonder is how do the governments of North Korea and South Korea feel about this process? Is it for the North Koreans, for example, they act like it doesn't happen? Um, do the South uh, South Korean government welcoming of these North Koreans? How do they both perceive it as in between each other, between the North and South, each other, and mm-hmm. personally within their own country? Um, how do they feel about it? Sure. So uh, 
it's 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 fairly simple actually mm-hmm. and um there is a there's a complete contrast right right the north korean government uh they have basically the the policy and the stance that you would expect um this is a terrible crime mm-hmm. uh you know they they try to stop people from traveling without mm. government permission even to to go to china and so obviously if you're going to china and then going all the way to south korea then uh the the framing and the narrative would be that you're a traitor mm. uh, or uh the the relatively the, the relatively kind of nicer framing but still only relative is that maybe you, you were abducted right. by south korean intelligence right so for the that north korean sense. government the south korean national intelligence service you know the equivalent of the kind of cia uh they are this massive bogeyman right the that they're massive they're very powerful they can do everything that it's the it's the reverse narrative of kind of reds under the bed and mm. you know spies everywhere and mm-hmm. it's a threat so that the the South Korean intelligence service plays that role in the the North Korean official psyche, mm-hmm. if you like, and the official narrative. Okay. And so, that so if so if you're if you're escaping coming to South Korea, then it's all that kind of stuff, right? It's it's associated with betraying the country or mm. being adopted by spies or being a spy yourself or or these kind of things. Uh, you know, especially of course if you're coming all the way to South Korea, mm-hmm. and then if you're if you're in contact, this is why it's it's dangerous uh, for family members in North Korea to maintain contact with family members who have come to South Korea, and they have mm-hmm. to be very careful about it um, because that kind of contact falls into that kind of framing, right? right. Of you know espionage potentially, and you know uh, uh, activities or crimes which threaten the security of the North Korean state. Mm-hmm. Um, and the North Korean government has, especially in the Kim Jong-un era, been investing and emphasizing uh, into cracking down on mm-hmm. border security. Mm-hmm. And so that means physical border security, fencing and electrified fencing, you know, are kind of improving the capacity of the border guards, mm-hmm. if you like, trying to root out corruption there. Um, you know, in, in some ways, increased cooperation with the Chinese authorities mm. to disrupt these kind of networks uh, and increased punishments and even a different kind of propaganda strategy right. on this issue. By, contra- by contrast, in South Korea, uh, there are, you know, there are certain marginal cases that run against this grain, but basically the institutional and legal and you know core policy framework is that the south korean government accepts north korean refugees mm-hmm. north korean defectors as not just refugees actually but as basically automatic or almost automatic south korean citizens Citizen, and so right. this this comes from the i mean officially there is not a country called south korea there yeah. is the republic of korea and the constitution of the republic of korea says that you know, uh, the whole peninsula is the it's, Republic of Korea. Uh, and, you know, the, the northern part is just kind of uh, yet to be claimed kind of I thing. You know, it. it's, it, it's just not, it's, it's being ruled by a, if you like, by a non-governmental, mm-hmm. you know, non-official, you know, it's, it's not quite under our ju- jurisdiction yet that kind of thing, right? That's the, yeah. that's the official thing from the start of, uh, from, right, from the start of, uh, 
South Korea and North Korea and even before the Korean War. Mm-hmm. And so that means that if you're a, a North Korean citizen, so you're from the northern part of Korea, Republic. And, yeah. and, you, yeah, and, you, and, and you come, then you're automatically accepted. And not just right. automatically accepted, but actually they're, uh, compared to other refugee programs, there are quite generous welfare you know, and assistance right. and, and, and housing and these kind of things. The government, of course, focuses more on those, you know, physical, material things mm-hmm. and, and financial assistance. And so we focus more on the kind of social, psychological aspects mm-hmm. that, you know, maybe it's not even really the government's role and, and it's where civil society civil society needs to step up to step in up. those kind of areas. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. It is night and day, just like you said, complete night and day. Um, all right, Tokil, I know you have another meeting. So... Um, where can people sort of see any videos to maybe change their own narrative, things like that? Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, if, if listeners are interested in the stories of the North Korean people and getting you know, maybe just a little bit more of a 3D perspective on this issue, mm-hmm. uh, the main thing that I would point people to is our latest documentary called The Changmadang Generation. Mm-hmm. So Changmadang, uh, that's all A's there in the vowels, <laughs> Changmadang uh, Generation. Or if you Google North Korean millennials, then it'll be the top or one of the top, one of the right. highest hits. Uh, so that documentary is now available free for view on YouTube and Vimeo mm-hmm. and so on. Uh, and also, you know, to learn more about our work, you can go to libertyinnorthkorea.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, our Korean website is the same, libertyinnorthkorea.or.kr. Uh, and you know the, the last thing maybe I would encourage people not just to to try and hear more stories of the North Korean people uh, from our media, mm-hmm. but you know there are more North Koreans now getting on YouTube and and sharing mm-hmm. their own stories. Uh, there are more ways than ever that people can learn more about the North Korean people and more mm-hmm. learn more about you know this uh, relatively under highlighted aspect of this issue. And if people are so moved, then I would also really encourage people to become an ally of the North Korean people. Right? Right. I think the, one, one of the problems here is that uh, this is a really important issue. This is, I think, one of the biggest challenges facing humanity in our era. Uh, and the North Korean people, I think, deserve and need a lot more allies around the world, a lot more solidarity and support for them. And so uh, if more people will be moved and mobilized to kind of step up as an ally of the North Korean people and help, not just through our organization, you know, there are other NGOs out mm-hmm. there uh, that people can find and, you know, pick one whose you know, vision and mission and work uh, resonates with you. And if you can, you know, donate a little bit each mm-hmm. month, you know, maybe, maybe the price of a coffee or two, uh, to kind of support the North Korean people through yep. NGOs and also, you know, h- help to kind of amplify the the voices of North Korean mm-hmm. people, right? So if, if North Koreans are on YouTube or are, you know, sharing their stories through social media or, or through our media as well, uh, you know, give that a like, give that a share, mm-hmm. uh, try and help to empower the North Korean people's voices and their narrative power so that more people around the world will hear that hear as opposed to just you know Kim Jong-un and, and missiles and so on great awesome here I'll also put that documentary and uh, the website in the information as well so people can they can take a look 
Thank you very much for this. I appreciate you taking your time out. Thank you. Thanks, Connor. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please subscribe to us. Go to any of our social media accounts or website. Tell your friends, tell your grandparents, do anything you can do in your power to help us out because it will allow us to continue doing this podcast for everybody, which we greatly appreciate. Thank you for the support and see you next time. Thank you.